interestingly enough, as it goes, like of course we got a lot of interest from developers, but we also had companies start reaching out even before we had any information about like companies using it. Like we really made it seem like it was just like a neat tool that any indie developer could use. Welcome back to the Founders Couch. This is a show about the most inspiring student founders and their intrepid journeys of starting their own thing. I'm your host, soon-to-be Stanford grad, Katherine Jane. Before I introduce my guest for the show today, I want to take a moment to address recent events. I want to make it clear that we at Founders Couch stand with the Black Lives Matter movement. I can't stress how important it is to acknowledge that there is a problem. Educate yourself. Donate if you're able. Have those challenging conversations with friends and family and amplify Black voices. In fact, I want to give a quick shout out to a really cool Black-hosted podcast called Side Hustle Pro, hosted by Nikayla Matthews-Okome. Side Hustle Pro spotlights bold Black woman entrepreneurs. Some other great Black-hosted podcasts about business are championing women's voices and behind the brilliance. Go check them out. In addition, I'd love to get more inspiring Black student founders on Founders Couch, so if you are one or know of one, please email me at founderscouchpodcast at gmail.com. Today on the show, we've got Moksh Jawa. Moksh is a senior at UPenn studying computer science and management. Hailing from Fremont, California, he's the co-founder of CodeFlow, a tool that makes it easy for engineering teams to build walkthroughs to rapidly onboard new developers. He's joined by three other co-founders. So far, the company has built an MVP while being on the front page of Hacker News and putting their products in the hands of multiple teams. They were the winners of the Pair VC and MBA Fund pitch competitions at Penn. It's a classic story of college roommates turned co-founders, but in this case, it's two sets of roommates. Moksh and his roommate banded together with his roommate's brother at Cornell and the roommate of his roommate's brother. The four got to know each other and knew they wanted to work on something, but went through several ideas before landing on this one. The inspiration behind CodeFlow specifically came from Moksh's roommate's internship experience last summer at Stripe, but it was something that all four co-founders, being technical, empathized with the struggle of assimilating to a large and complex code base. With that, they began hacking away. Of course, I want to say a huge thank you to Jessica Lee and Neil Band for connecting me to Amanda Dang and to Amanda for her kind intro. Without these folks, this episode with Moksh wouldn't be a thing. Now onto the show. Let's get Moksh on the couch. Hey Moksh, welcome to the show. Hey Catherine, thanks for having me. How are you doing? Um, good, just just like everyone else, just trying to get through this, but I uh, can't complain. Lucky to be home and safe. I feel that. Moksh, why don't we first off just talk a little bit about where you're from? Where did you grow up? Um, yeah, so I was, uh, was born in India, but moved to the Bay Area when I was one, so I've pretty much grown up in California. Um, and I just finished up my third year at Penn, uh, where I'm studying CS and business, um, and that's kind of how I got here. Which part of the Bay, if you don't mind me asking? Um, Fremont, the East Bay. Okay, very cool. So Moksh, I've given listeners a little bit of a rundown of what CodeFlow does, but could you tell me what your company does in your own words? Yeah, sure. CodeFlow is a tool for engineering teams to build code walkthroughs that can allow them to onboard new engineers more quickly. Awesome. And, you know, we, we talked a little bit before this, but I know the story goes back to you know, it's four co-founders, including yourself. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about how you met and what's the dynamic been like? Yeah, so we have a very cool, I think, dynamic and kind of meeting story. So uh, as you mentioned, it's four co-founders. And interestingly, it's basically two pairs of roommates. 
Um, so my roommate, Ash, and I, we met at the first day of school at Penn. He's also from the Bay Area, but we just coincidentally happened to run into each other first day. We've been roommates and best friends ever since. And similarly, the other two co-founders, one of them is Rish, and he's actually Ash's brother. So that's how the two pairs got connected. Um, and Rish and Noah, who was our, was our fourth co-founder, they were both really good friends and worked together and were basically roommates at Cornell. Um, so that's kind of how the two pairs uh, knew each other. And then, of course, through Ash and Rish, we got to know each other, and we've always been toying around with ideas and always have all had an interest in building something and kind of applying what we've been learning. Um, so that's kind of how we eventually came together when we found we had something that we all wanted to work on. It's basically like a, a coming together of two pairs. I guess, what pair first started talking about startups and entrepreneurship, and, and what pair is the one that kind of initiated with the other? Um, so it's kind of hard, hard to remember, but I think... I think so there was a little bit of both where both pairs were kind of independently doing their thing. And of course, as you know, when you're at school, um, there's so many ideas that are floated around in between classes during dinner or anything. So I think both pairs were kind of on that. The other pair at Cornell is a little bit older than us. So I guess they started a little bit earlier, but both pairs had always been throwing around ideas among each other. We would meet each other occasionally. And then it came to a point where we realized why not all four of us just put everything together. I mean, I think all of our experiences as engineers really interested in working on, on us working in something in the dev tool space. Yeah, makes total sense. So all of you guys have been kind of toying with ideas. How did you land on this one? So it was kind of, it was kind of a long process in that this was not an idea where a lot of the things that we've worked on before were something that you kind of spontaneously thought of an idea and you just kind of went for it. Um, this one was a little bit more fully baked. Um, so by that, what I mean is actually the original idea came from my roommate, Ash. Um, he was interning at Stripe last summer, and the rest of us were also interning at different places. And the one kind of shared experience we had was when we started working at these companies, it took us so long to understand their code base and much less actually become valuable contributors. And of course, we were interns, so that was okay. It was part of the learning experience. But that was something we saw for new or even established engineers when they would go to different parts of the code base or when they would try to contribute in a different way, it would take so long for them to get onboarded. And it was kind of like the experience of where someone is just thrown into the water and left to try to figure out how to swim on their own. Um, and so we thought, you know, of course that works today. Companies are still able to move forward, but so much time is wasted. And especially with how much turnover there is where every other person is jumping from startup to startup in the Bay Area, or working from team to team. Um, we saw that that like, process of getting used to a new code base was one that was actually a pretty big hurdle as companies tried to scale and really grow their engineering base. Um, so that's kind of where the initial idea came from. And we had personally experienced it. So it was, it was something where there wasn't a very clear solution in our heads initially. I think it was something where we knew that there was a problem there with understanding code, figure out, figuring out what was going on in the code base. But it wasn't something where per se we had like a solution in our head the moment we thought of the problem as well. Um, mm -hmm. So it was a lot of talking between each other, like reaching out to different alumni of the schools we go to and like people that we knew and asking them for their, for their perspectives on like the best practices, the worst practices they'd seen. And that's when we slowly, I think, putting together the pain points we were hearing about and different experiences people had. We started piecing that together into kind of what the MVP of CodeFlow ended up being. Interesting. So it was more of like you had this sense that this was a problem that you wanted to solve, but you did some validation by talking to alumni and other people in your network. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, of course, I think it was valuable to do that validation in any case, but I think our, valid, our approach to doing that validation was less so um, 
us trying to validate that the solution or the problem was a big problem. It was more us just trying to get inspiration for how to piece together a solution, even mm, though we realized that the former is even more important, but I think we used it for way more of the latter. Through all these user interviews, how many, if you wouldn't mind me asking, how many did you guys do, if you had a, an approximate? So just before we actually started working on the solution, we talked to about 10 to 15 people, which gave us a pretty good signal. Since then, we've done a lot more, but those were enough to give us the initial signal of kind of what the state of the art was. And when you got a sense of what this idea would look like, I'm assuming, did you, you know, put together a mock-up? Was it, you know, immediate coding? Like, what did that look like? Yeah, so we've worked on projects before. So certainly before, even when we've worked on pairs individually, like it's always been straight to jump into coding. This time we were a little bit more structured and actually trying to make some mock-ups, like talk through the idea. And I think part of it just goes back to the solution wasn't one where some of the things we've worked on, it's very clear, oh, we're gonna build a platform for this or a marketplace for this. In this case, it was something where it was a little bit more of a nuanced solution. So it was something that we actually had to think through and visualize every aspect of before we could start coding because Truth be told, we couldn't actually start coding it without knowing exactly what it was. Right, that makes total sense. And before I talk more about, I guess, like the idea and how you further validate it, um, I want to talk a little bit about like the dynamic because obviously, you know, it's two pairs of people, you know, that set of roommate was in Ithaca and, and, you, and you guys are basically in Philadelphia. How did you guys make it work? Yeah, it was very, very interesting. And I don't think, uh, you know, we had drawn up the founding team being that way, but, you know, certainly can't complain and are very thankful for it. And I think the one thing that was really important to that relationship, so we had two co-founders in Philly, we had two co-founders in Ithaca. And I think the one thing that was important was that each city had two people in it. Um, we kind of reflect now. And, you know, of course, you go through a lot of bumps on the way, a lot of confusion as well. And it's, you know, that experience of having someone in person with you, especially your roommate during the time while building a product is very, very important. These days you're hearing about so many companies that are going remote first, um, and I'm certainly an advocate for it, but I think when you're starting to start something, um, I think that in-person experience of being able to bounce off ideas and share notes um, is incredibly important. So of course, with four people kind of distributed, we would have regular sync up calls almost on a daily basis for sure. But those kind of smaller conversations that happen where, you know, you get an email from a customer or an interested engineer and those instant kind of back and forth or thoughts you have that I can instantly share with my roommate or, you know, our two, our two co-founders and I think I could share with each other were extremely valuable. And of course, whatever kind of anything that comes out of it that's fruitful, you can disseminate to the rest of the team whenever we connect next. But having someone to bounce it off was one really good for that thought and thought and iteration process. But then after you know, that one step beyond that, it was also very good for just keeping the motivation high. Because of course, when you start working on something, everyone's very excited. And then as you slowly run into problems or you're a little confused, that's where having someone else to just immediately go to is really, really important. So I think from that aspect, I think we were able to manage remote work just by having one person, uh, one pair in person for each. Yeah, I can't even imagine like if it was just one person and like three people in one place, that'd be, you know, I can understand why it'd be more difficult to keep things going. Absolutely. So this is a case where, you know, it's four people, they love working together, they, they enjoy working together. Um, then you guys came up with the idea in a way. So it's like first team, then idea versus the other way around. How would you say that has helped you? Well, I think, I think the, the, the first thing that comes to mind is it helps you because 
um, kind of ideas are plentiful and you test out ideas. A lot of ideas don't even make the initial like kind of test. You build out ideas, those don't make it. Ideas that even get customers don't end up making it. So the one thing that can always, you're, you're okay with changing or you kind of expect to change is the idea. The one thing you don't want changing is the team. So I think sometimes when kind of we've had experiences with friends as well that kind of teams that come together because of an idea, of course, they're very mission driven and passionate about it. But as with many startups, when that idea kind of hits a roadblock for some unfortunate reason, then a lot of times the team will break up because not everyone is still invested and it was more they were going after the idea. So I think that one thing that's been really nice for us is because we came together as a team first, everyone was kind of team driven more than mission driven. And then of course we were lucky enough to find an idea and a mission that we cared about, but that was very nice for us because that kind of, as we've hit roadblocks along the way, being able to consider other ideas and like even potentially pivoting the, the product has not met as much opposition just because we all know that all four of us are still in it. Yeah, that's so interesting. Like, I feel like the, like you said, the idea is bound over time to, you know, change. You're going to be pivoting and what keeps it together is the team. So that's something I'm going to keep in mind in the future yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I know all four of you guys are basically have technical capability. You're, you're able to code at the beginning because, you know, all, there's a lot of, um, I guess, similar skill sets. How did you figure out how to delegate work and, you know, who was essentially going to own what? Yeah, that was another very interesting experience and one that we, we reflect on now. Um, but because I guess, as you mentioned, all of us were technical and this was a technical tool we were building, I guess, um, building it was one of the most exciting parts about it. Um, so that was something where, you know, having four people, it, it kind of reaches the point where, yes, everyone could be working on it, but is it worth having everyone work on it? Um, and this was kind of our first time trying to build a B2B product as well. So I think initially we kind of underestimated how much, I guess, the sales side or actually like getting the product out there would matter as opposed to just building the product. Because from our perspective, we were like, we're building something that's new. We're actually having to think very hard about what we're building. Um, that seems like it would take all of the time. And so we kind of also realized though with four people who were pretty technical and had experience building products, it necessarily wasn't the best allocation of just effort just to have everyone sitting. It might've honestly slowed us down more than sped us up. Um, so what we initially did was we did a three, one split. So I actually am studying CS and business at Penn. So it was kind of cool to apply maybe something besides CS that I had actually learned in school. Um, so what we did was the other three co-founders were focused on the development. I was focused on sales, user interviews, um, anything besides the development experience. Um, so that's kind of how we did the split initially. And one of our biggest learnings was, especially with B2B, it's all about talking to the customer. We certainly had the capabilities to build anything, but it was really important to understand what to build by talking to our customers. Um, so actually what we ended up doing is we started with this 3-1 split and we ended up kind of moving towards a 2-2 split um, where one person was kind of spending half the time doing code, but also half the time doing sales and anything else because that input that I and the other person were getting from kind of talking to customers and people interested was really valuable in shaping what we were doing in our development side. And it was about kind of using the time and the efforts we were putting in, using them towards the right features and the right things that people wanted. Right, that makes total sense. Yeah, it's better to, instead of like heads down coding, actually like taking those user insights, like you said, and convert it into effective features. Yeah, and it's totally, it's, it's hard, it's hard to resist because, you know, we all love building, so it's hard to resist, but we, we tried, started to see the value in it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we talked a little bit about, you know, starting to code, having this idea in mind, like, what were those few weeks like? Like, like, was it three of them, you know, 
heads down coding on this thing and you were reaching out and doing user interviews and then converting those insights, like what did those few weeks look like? Yeah, exactly. Just like that. So especially, I guess, very early on, um, it was a lot more where things were moving so fast on the development end. And truthfully, on my end, things weren't moving as fast because for the development end, we knew exactly what we need to do. It was very tangible. We had a very tangible goal set. Whereas on my side, it was a little more ambiguous. We weren't sure exactly who the target customer was. We weren't sure if we should get more feedback on the product or try selling it or, you know, try just putting a beta out there for free. Um, so there was a lot more to think through and a bit, maybe a bit more ambiguity. Um, so that's kind of how it started off where I think the development just took off and I kind of felt like I was lagging behind or at least, you know, so that was something where you're actually being able to communicate with that and work through them with that. We were able to decide as a team, like what our priorities were for kind of the initial MVP we were building. And then things really started picking up on the other side. Cause once we kind of had a clear goal, just the way with at least developing a product, it's really easy to make a goal you're very clear, like, I want to have this feature done by this date, um, kind of started doing something similar on the sales side, where, like, we want to have very, like, three more insights about the product by this date, or we want to talk to XYZ types of people by this date. Um, once it became a little bit more of that, then the speeds kind of aligned and everything, everything was kind of moving fast. And then, and then, as you mentioned, it kind of became where the hands-down development was happening and hands-down talking to people was happening. And then it was, like, I would just take notes and then we would discuss them together. It wasn't just that I was like generating insights and giving it, it was like we would all discuss it because all of us had a pretty vested interest in the use case of the product. And then we could parse through what we thought was very valuable, what was kind of better for the future and things like that. How long did it take for you guys to build that initial MVP? So the MVP took, I think a bit less, bit less than four weeks. Um, we put it together. Impressive. It, yeah, it was, it was exciting. And I think that kind of speaks to our experience building products before. So figuring out the stack we were using and things like that were pretty easy. Um, so it took, it took a bit less than four weeks and then we just put it out there on Hacker News. And what were like your initial goals with that MVP? Like, did you want, you know, sales? Did you want to just test the idea? Like what, what were your hopes for that? Yeah. So for, for, I think we, we kind of set our expectations low. Um, we literally just wanted to put it out there and even see if this like problem solution was something even a few people were interested in. Um, so that's what we were looking towards. We weren't even thinking about sales. Sales was kind of like the next step after building the MVP. But when we put it out there, we weren't really thinking that this is something that we're marketing as a tool enterprises can use or anything like that. We literally just put it out on a few forums where we knew we'd find a lot of developers. And we wanted to see what those people who have way more experience developing even than we do, what they thought about the product. Um, and so interesting enough, interestingly enough, as it goes, like, of course, we got a lot of interest from developers, but we also had companies start reaching out even before we had any information about like companies using it. Like we really made it seem like it was just like a neat tool that any indie developer could use. Um, but we still had companies reaching out, which kind of, kind of took care of the next step, which we were focusing on was like validating that need for businesses. So when that, when you guys had that reaction, what, what did you think? Like, what were your next steps? Uh, so of course, first we were very excited, uh, very excited, very grateful. Um, the next step was that we kind of, and this was a big learning, so I'll kind of get to what the learning was here, but we had a couple of pretty cool and established companies reach out to us and we thought we hit like the head on the nail. Like we thought we killed it. Um, so we got very excited thinking that, you know, here we were just posting an MVP to see if developers were even interested in it. And better than that, developers and companies are interested in it and we eventually want to go to companies. Um, so we started kind of getting on calls with these companies, like trying to do the B2B sales that we had read and heard so much about where we're kind of selling the product, talking like security, installation, things like that. Uh, when we only really have an MVP that we've built in four weeks. 
Um, so our, we kind of kind of pivoted our approach from really focusing on product iteration and like refining the product because of course the MVP is like just the first step there. We right. focused away from that a little bit. Of course, we had a lot of things to fix and improve, so we did that. But then we also started giving a lot of attention to these kind of companies that were reaching out that wanted to use us. And as we kind of spent time giving them attention, our product iteration speed started to slow down. And one of our biggest learnings was we kind of um, we kind of got so excited about that business interest that we kind of forgot about the most important part about even building a B2B product. Yes, it's important to have customers, but the most important thing is to bring a, build a product that gives that company 10x value. And we just weren't there yet. And so even though we were seeing companies, we should have still focused on building that product some more so that when we actually talked to these companies, they would actually convert into customers rather than being people who were in, uh, companies who were interested as, as they turned out to be. So, you know, when you were getting a bunch of this interest, um, I know you mentioned in, in one of our calls that you noticed that these companies were interested, but they, some of them struggled to convert to actually paying. You know, tell me a little bit more about that and, and kind of what you guys learned through that process. Yeah, I think that was kind of the most, the, kind of our biggest point of learning there. And so what happened during that process was we had a couple of really cool and established companies, companies we would love to work at, reach out to us and say, hey, they were interested. Hey, they wanted to check out and get a demo of the product. So we would do these calls. They would typically be pretty excited about the product, give us some detailed feedback. And then they'd say, you know, we'll check in soon for next steps once you're able to implement a few things. And then, you know, we can set up a pilot or something like that for you guys. Um, so we kind of thought we were going down really well down the list and checking things off. Um, and soon during that process, we kind of realized that a lot of these companies that were interested, they were still interested, but it was, they didn't have enough, I guess, motivation to go from interested to actually going through the trouble, either financially or more importantly, even logistically changing their engineering processes to start using our product. And that's kind of, you know, when we started to realize that, you know, when we, when we went back and talked to them, they, and we told them, you know, just be candid with us, like what kind of held you back from just going head over heels to start using this? And it kind of came down to that thing I was mentioning earlier where we didn't have a product that was fully baked yet. So, you know, it wasn't even a financial concern, but it was more just like changing their engineering processes were such a big deal for them that, you know, they wanted to make sure they were doing it for a product they could feasibly imagine themselves using. So I think we had a few more cycles of iteration to go through on our product before it was ready to actually show them. And the other kind of cherry on top there was that, you know, we're a dev tool and we work with the company's code base. So the security concern of them actually giving us access to the code base was just like the cherry on top in terms of a bigger hurdle that we had to jump through. Mm, interesting. And, you know, this makes me wonder, like these companies that you were talking with and you ultimately later gained these insights, what type of person did you talk to? Was it like an executive? Was it like a manager? Like what level? Yeah. So, you know, that's something that we kind of navigated a ton of trying to figure out and people had different takes. Some people said, you know, just talk to the CTO and get them to push it all the way down the organization. These days, mm -hmm. we've also been hearing about a lot of B2B tools having success kind of ground up from a, like a little flywheel approach like Figma or Slack. Right. Um, for us, we realized we kind of came in at the middle where we were kind of we required enough security access where, you know, a, like a new engineer or like even just a regular engineer couldn't get us to use them. And a CTO was very unlikely to kind of force some documentation tool down. So it was really about hitting managers or senior engineers who were kind of the sweet spot where they had enough clout in the organization to actually champion the product. Um, but they were also at a low enough level where they tangibly understood and felt the problem on a daily basis. Um, so that's kind of the people who actually ended up reaching out to us. There was a lot of senior engineers who end up doing a lot of these onboardings and like 
explaining code bases again and again, and they really felt that problem, so they had a pretty vested interest. Mm -hmm. So you're talking to these, you know, senior engineers, and you gained a bunch of these insights. How did that change your strategy? Like, what did you do next? Yeah, so this was something where it wasn't something, you know, just by talking to a few of them, we knew exactly what to do. As I kind of mentioned, we reached a stage where we had kind of talked to all these people and finally understood why they weren't converting from interested customers to actually paying customers. Um, so the first learning there for us was like, you know, really established that willingness to pay. I guess after we kind of ran the problem, we read so much that with B2B products, one of the biggest things is even before you start developing something, if you can establish some sort of like what they call like booked revenue where someone's like, if you could build, build this hypothetical product, I would give you X dollars. If you can kind of get that statement out of potential customers, that's when you want to start building a B2B product. Um, so that was kind of the first, first learning we had there. But kind of after we had these experiences and we kind of hit a roadblock a little bit where we couldn't really get anyone to start paying for a product, um, we realized we wanted to take a step back and really focus on getting some more iterations of the product. So we realized that open source would be a really good community for us. And the reason for that is twofold. One, that open source kind of eliminates that security concern that a lot of the companies had. But the second is also, if I'm a manager at Facebook and a new engineer joins, that new engineer is being paid to struggle and learn through the code base. But for the open source community, when they have contributors join, they're kind of doing it out of their own interest. So they're not required to kind of continue to like learn the code base if they fall off or get bored. Um, so for open source companies, like they're kind of Oxygen is the community they build around their product. And so they want to make the onboarding experience as pleasant as possible. So we realized that open source companies face the problem much more acutely. So we've kind of shifted our product to focus on serving open source, um, open source repositories and companies because we think that they'd be more interested and then they can allow us to go through that product iteration cycle that we think we need before we can go back to enterprises. So taking a little bit of a step back from getting money and focusing just on getting you know, daily active users. Yeah, no, that was something I think we last talked about, right? Because like you initially had, you know, some paying trials, but now you're going down the route where it's free trials, but with open source, which was ultimately a better long-term strategy. Yeah. Um, well, we'll see if it's a better long-term strategy. But, yeah. <laughs> we'll we, initially, yeah, we, we doubted it a ton initially, and I was especially skeptical about it because I was like, usually, you know, you don't want to turn away money to go down the free route. Uh, the typical like Silicon Valley thing is like get revenue early if you can. Um, but, you know, we also realized like the value and the importance of really building a product that wasn't just something people would look at and say it's interesting. It's something where people see it and they're like, I need this to start being used at my company. So I think we still have a ways to go there and we think open source could be our path to eventually getting there. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and things you mentioned like security um, integrations are much of a bigger issue when it comes to selling to these big enterprise customers. So it's, yeah. it's good that you guys are going down this path and really making sure that you hit those points before approaching those people again. Yeah. So question that I have um, about Penn and sort of the resources that they gave you during this time, how would you say, you know, Penn helped you? Was it, you know, did you do pitch competitions? Did you tap into accelerator programs? Like how did, how did they assist? Yep. So actually, it's the kind of cool time to, I guess, be working on it because Penn recently, or at least what we hear from newsletters and kind of uh, campus programming is there's been a lot of effort being pushed to having students build their own things. And I think these days with everything that's going on, with every student kind of stuck at home, more and more of my peers are just spending their time like building products and building out ideas they've always had in the back of their minds. Um, Penn had a couple of accelerators that we kind of 
um, worked with a little bit from us more importantly, I think the pitch competition and being able to access the network of professors was really good for us. Um, so we did a couple of pitch competitions that went well for us. We did a pair VC at a pitch competition at Wharton and then the MBA fund at Wharton also had a pitch competition. Um, so those got us introduced to a lot of funding sources, but also um, got us introduced to so many different teams and potential customers, including a couple of open source repositories. And then the network of professors was even more valuable for us. And this was something that was just kind of built from the different classes we had taken. Um, but there were a couple of professors who have kind of had an experience actually working on their own startups and then coming back into academia. So those people were fantastic to talk about to get kind of an experienced overview of how, how it is to build a product and kind of the different things we should be thinking through. Um, so some of my professors who I had just taken, you know, classes with in the fall actually became people I was seeing pretty regularly just to ask for advice as I was working on this, which was, which was awesome. Yeah, that's great to have like personal mentors along this process. Yeah. Something I want to ask is, you know, obviously you guys are getting, I like how you said we did well. I mean, slash you guys won basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you were getting this interest from all these VCs. How did you approach those conversations? Because I know you said you started to realize that you didn't necessarily need the money. Yeah, so it's funny how things, I guess, move so fast. We initially got all these interested customers. And right after that, we had a lot of VCs reaching out who were interested because of all these pitch competitions. Um, and of course, we were telling them all about our interested customers. So they were even more excited than we were. Um, so it kind of became like this domino effect that just kind of kept leading to more interest. And kind of midway along that process, we started to realize that a lot of these customers weren't panning out as we expected. We had to take a step back. So part of that was also about informing like the VCs we had talked to and were talking to, many of which who gave us investment offers and just telling them like, hey, we could take your money right now. But considering where we're at, where we have a product that we're just going to have to step back and figure out exactly where it's going, um, we don't have a direct use for your money. Because the one nice thing about all of the changes that have happened in the world is that now it's really easy to build something with very minimal cost um, just from a room or from a garage. Um, so we didn't really have the need for the money until we started building something that a lot of people were using. And then we really wanted to scale the product and scale the company. Um, so we kind of said, you know, we appreciate it. Like we couldn't imagine ever getting this many offers. But, you know, we want to make sure we have something awesome and then we'll come back and uh, certainly buy you then. Yeah. I feel like it takes um, definitely a level of self-awareness to do something like that. Yeah, um, um, that, that kind of came back to having the right mentors along the process as well. Yeah, for sure. So I want to ask two more questions before we move on to the Founders Couch Fire Round. Yeah. Um, the first is, how, how would you say COVID is affecting you guys? Because... I know lots of companies like Twitter are, are starting to go, you know, remote permanently. How does that sort of affect the need for your product and, and just you guys as a whole? So what we found overall is that in general, the kind of move to more re remote work has kind of improved or increased the need for our product. Um, the reason being that it's difficult enough to try to understand a code base when you're in person and you can always tap the engineer right next to you to ask them it's even harder when you have to do things like sharing your code base on Zoom, like sharing your screen on Zoom and trying to scroll through it and parse through it. So there's even more value in kind of recreating that physical experience of an engineer sitting down with you and walking you through the code. And that's exactly what CodeFlow aims to do. Um, so actually, in fact, some of the people we spoke to, we like recently reconnected with them because they're even more interested because um, of this kind of remote situation or remote work as the world mo moves more towards remote work. Um, so that's why we're doubling down on just like making sure we iterate on the product quickly. So the next time we talk to people, we imagine they'll hopefully be even more interested 
and hopefully we'll have a more compelling product to provide them with. Yeah, that's super exciting. Um, last question before the fire round. Um, you know, right now it's June, it's nearing the middle of June and you guys started, you said around January of this year. Yep. So if you had the chance to basically take a step back and kind of speak to yourself, January, 2020, Moksh, what would you say to your younger self? Um, I've thought about this a lot recently because we are kind of going through that crisis where you're figuring out why did we even go down this path? Um, and I think the one thing that um, I kind of would have told myself is really focused on building the product, things like getting funding or getting customers. At the end of the day, that's what you're building it for, but can become distractions a little bit early on. And by that, I think just focus on really building a product that I myself would just love using or could imagine using at any company that I've worked at. And I think the chances that the four of us could do that together, the chances of other people and companies wanting to use this, I think are decently high just because we have the same or similar experiences to them. All right, let's move on to the fire round. So basically this is where I'm gonna shoot at you five quick questions, no pressure. Um, yeah. And it'd be great if you could you know, get back with some quick responses. So are you ready? Yes. <laughs> All right, first question, most memorable experience at Penn? We have this tradition called Econ Scream, which is just the first midterm of freshman year. Everyone in like the freshman dorm comes out to the quad, which is like our central area, and everyone just screams for like two minutes straight, right when the clock hits midnight. Um, so one of the first experiences of college and kind of set, set the tone for the rest of college. That's almost like primal scream at Stanford. We have that during like uh, finals week. <laughs> yeah, ours was like for the first midterm, but yeah, I think sounds like a similar thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, second question, favorite class at Penn and why? Um, so my favorite class um, was a stat class, which was called Applied Probability Models in Marketing. And it was this entire class focused on a professor whose life, life's work had just been on generating models to like, I guess, predict customer retention and customer engagement. And he had actually recently sold a company that did like kind of implemented all of his research and practice to Nike. Um, so wow. he took all of his kind of proprietary research he had used to build the company and then started sharing it as a class. And it's just the most phenomenal experience because it was some of the most challenging material I learned, but also the most applicable. And I think the best professor I had in terms of breaking down very complicated concepts and making them very accessible. Very cool. Third question, quarantine activity that keeps you sane? So I was just mentioning this to you before, um, on our last call, but uh, I've been doing puzzles a lot with my family. We've just been sitting down for an hour every night working on it, which has been a ton of fun. And uh, I didn't realize I enjoyed puzzles so much until, until quarantine. Mm -hmm. Must be a very bonding experience. <laughs> well, bonding when everyone's actually putting pieces down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, fourth question, one word or phrase that embodies your startup journey? I think ambiguity, um, just not knowing what to expect with every turn, but I think kind of what's come with that has been a lot of learning and I anticipate a lot more to come down the road. Mm -hmm. I feel like you couldn't have summed it up even better. I, I totally feel that. <laughs> Last question, where do you see CodeFlow going and what are the next steps for Mokshdala? With CodeFlow, I think as, as we had kind of touched on with remote work growing so much and some just kind of being something that we're building that we would actually want to use, um, we want to get this in the hands of as many people as possible and really focus on making it a product that we can pitch towards any company and really imagine that like rat, like kind of significantly improving their engineering experience and their documentation experiences. Um, and personally for me, I want to continue to build and learn. Um, I think that even though these past six months have been tough with their ups and downs, I think the amount I've learned has been way more than any other period in my life. Um, so I want to continue do, doing that and just trying out different things. Awesome. 
I'm really excited to see where CodeFlow goes. And honestly, I feel like like this is, I feel like the first step to your entrepreneurial journey. Like I, I can see you creating a ton of really cool companies in the future. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been awesome so far. So lucky to be able to keep it going. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Moksh. Yep. Thanks for having me, Catherine. What a great discussion that was with some really key insights. Thanks again to Moksh for coming on the couch. I'm excited to see where he goes with CodeFlow. And thanks to all of you for tuning into this episode. Make sure to subscribe to Founders Couch wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any feedback, suggestions, questions, or any existential thoughts, write to us at founderscouchpodcast at gmail.com. If you're all about that social media life and want to see more from us, follow us on Instagram at founderscouch. Friday after next, I'll be digging deep into another student founder's journey. Make sure to tune in June 26th for another Founders Couch Friday. I'm Catherine Jang, and you've been listening to The Founders Couch. See y'all soon.